transformative clinicians tend not to see boundaries. Instead, they step away from their training and they try to look in totally new different directions. This is Dr. Rhoda O, a neuropsychology expert, professor at the Boston University School of Medicine, and a transformative clinician herself. Transformation is a central theme of this podcast. We're exploring how to innovate and improve our one-size-fits-all approach to public health so we can deliver the right interventions to the right people at the right time. In this episode, we turn our attention to the people who are fundamental to public health, clinicians. Clinicians not only deliver care, but contribute to the research and development of the treatments we rely on. I started my professional life as a clinician, and I loved clinical practice. I practiced for 15 years. And of course, one is able to make important contributions to improve people's lives. To me, health is wealth. And the best thing we can do for a fellow human being is to allow them to live to their fullest potential. These are the voices of some clinician experts we've spoken to in previous episodes. And based on their experience, they know there are some barriers that prevent clinicians from trying new and better approaches, from becoming transformative clinicians. We'll discuss three of these barriers in this episode. First, healthcare as a field tends to emphasize tradition over innovation. So what opportunities are there to update clinical training and validation processes so clinicians are empowered to think differently and creatively about care? Second, clinicians need enough clinical evidence to validate the use of a new treatment and intervention. But what level of evidence is sufficient? And third, Personalized interventions can be costly. So how can health systems ensure they are affordable and accessible? To learn more about these challenges, we'll hear more from Dr. Rhoda Oh and another expert, Dr. Naris Damrongchai, CEO of Genopeutic Bio, a cell and gene technology company in Thailand. We will also review case studies that highlight ways to overcome these challenges and why it can take time to change approaches to care in clinical practice. This is Future Proofing Healthcare, a podcast that explores how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. Transformative clinicians can be found throughout medical history. From their first application of anesthesia during general surgery in 1846, to the development of antibiotics in the 1940s, to the ongoing work of the Fred Hollows Foundation to end avoidable blindness. Healthcare has benefited immeasurably from the work of these pioneering individuals. More recently, two immunologists, Dr. James Allison and Dr. Tasuku Honjo, helped launch the development of cancer immunotherapy drugs. Here's oncologist Professor James Larkin, an advisor to Melanoma UK, to explain the impact that cancer immunotherapy drugs have had on cancer care. Now we're in a situation where already we know that life expectancy actually for people who've got advanced melanoma as a consequence of some of the new immunotherapy drugs that we've been working with, probably half of people now will live at least three years who've got advanced melanoma. So, so for cancer Prior to Dr. Allison and Dr. Hanjo's discovery, the median survival rate for a person diagnosed with advanced melanoma was less than a year. Traditional cancer treatments like chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation simply weren't effective for most patients. But immunotherapy drugs take a new approach. 
They fight cancer by helping the body's immune system fight malignant cells. Currently, immunotherapy drugs make up nearly half of the cancer drug market because they are so effective. In one study, 40% of advanced melanoma patients were alive three years after beginning treatment. Immunotherapy drugs are commonly used alongside chemotherapy and radiation. But for decades, long before these treatments came to market, Dr. Allison struggled to convince health systems that the immune system could play a role in fighting cancer. Countless colleagues told Dr. Allison not to pursue tumor immunology because it was considered bad science. Even after he published multiple studies proving that his intervention could work, Dr. Allison still faced skepticism. All but one pharma company refused to develop an immunotherapy drug. Today, despite their widespread use, cancer immunotherapy treatments are still extremely expensive. Not all health systems reimburse these drugs. Through the whole of his experience, Dr. Allison ran headfirst into all three barriers that can discourage transformative clinicians. When you're first, you're trying to carve a path that doesn't exist, and there's no one there to say, yes, that's the right direction. Everybody always thinks we want to be innovative and we want to be at the forefront. And I always say it's actually really terrible to be first. It's actually better to be 10th. This is Dr. Rhoda Oh again explaining how it can be hard to emulate clinicians like Dr. Allison and Dr. Hongjo, because fundamentally, healthcare tends to be conservative. Not in the political sense, but slow to change. Clinicians are trained to do what has already been proven to work, not to break out of the mold. The interesting thing about academics is that the system foundationally is built to not really allow truly new ideas to break through easily. One of the things that's important to remember about academics is that we live in a peer-reviewed system. So you have to have this whole base of knowledge from which people can determine whether the science you're proposing is legitimate or not. On the one hand, it's being looked at objectively by other people who are experts in this field. Well, what happens if you're starting to embark in an area that no one has gone before? It's hard to get traction because there's nobody there to give some sort of objective evaluation as to whether this is really legitimate or not. Also, the peer review process can be lengthy, which can delay the adoption of new interventions. We like to see lots of things written up in papers ahead of time can't just be in any journal. It has to be in some top journal. It has to be presented at conferences multiple times. And then over a period of many, many years, you'll start to see some adoption. That's a really tough system to break into. Rhoda is also the lead for global cohort development at the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. One of the collaborative's goals is to use data and technology to improve care for Alzheimer's patients. Alzheimer's, dementia, and other aging-related neurodegenerative disorders are a rich area for personalized health. As humans live longer, these diseases affect more people, and they are debilitating and costly in more ways than one. If you have a family member with dementia, you'll know what I mean. New approaches to care are needed but our current processes for testing and validating interventions can be self-defeating 
and ultimately prevent clinicians from delivering care in a truly different and better way. When you're trying to move something forward, but your validation process is this gold standard that was developed using the old ways, it's very hard to get the approval, the gold stamp approval for something that needs a new standard, but that new standard doesn't exist because we're tied to the old standard. I see this a lot in the digital health technologies. If you look at the majority of them today, they're really just a better version of what we're already doing because what we try to do is we try to validate them against the existing standard. We all want to live and age with dignity and ensure our loved ones get the best care available. Health systems have an opportunity to change the way clinicians are educated by training them to use new interventions and more fundamentally, to think differently about how innovation and technology can improve both delivery of care and overall health outcomes. One of the things that is very clear is that there is a lack of expertise We can do telehealth, but telehealth is still dependent on having someone in front of that screen. I'm really curious about how robotics can come into this realm to bridge the gap between having real human contact and having these simulated, high-touch, technically-driven interactions. I think that the power of technology is not just simply doing a better version of what we're already doing. I think to really unleash its power, we need to let it do things that we've never imagined are possible. This brings us to the second barrier facing transformative clinicians, insufficient clinical evidence. To prescribe a new drug, test, or treatment regimen, clinicians must have enough evidence to justify their decision. But what constitutes sufficient evidence? The answer to this question is not so simple. As an example, let's go back to cancer care. Over the last several decades, our understanding of cancer has evolved significantly. Traditionally, it was defined and treated by location. Lung cancer was considered one disease that was different from breast cancer. But now, we know that cancer is much more complex and can be different from person to person. There are at least 12 different subtypes of lung cancer alone. So the most essential factor in diagnosing and treating cancer isn't necessarily its location in the body, but the genetic mutation underlying the disease. There are a few hundred genes involved in cancer, and a single genetic mutation can present as a lung tumor in one person and a breast tumor in another. We understand the molecular complexity of cancer thanks to advances in genomic medicine, which have given us a detailed map of the entire genetic makeup of the human body. Genomic testing can also be used in cancer care. By human genome sequencing, we're now able to not only do the sequencing of the normal DNA, but also of the cancer DNA. And by sophisticated algorithms and computer programs, we're able to determine how the cancer cell mutated and what are the driving mutation that results in its growth and sometimes resistance to therapy. This is Dr. Asher Chanan Khan, a hematologist and expert at the Mayo Clinic in the United States. As he explains, genomic profiling tests take a small sample of a patient's cancer cells to determine what specific mutation is causing his or her disease. The insights from these tests also provide insights to clinical care 
because not all cancers respond in the same way to a given intervention. Identifying the right reason, the precise lesion, can help us define what is the best treatment for our patients. The most effective test is called Comprehensive Genomic Profiling, or CGP. CGP only requires a very small cell sample to screen for hundreds of different mutations. It received regulatory approval in the U.S. in 2015 and is available in many countries. But despite its potential to improve outcomes, CGP is still not the default approach to care for many cancer patients around the world. Why? Because of a perceived lack of widespread or universal clinical evidence. Although CGP tests have proven to be safe, effective, and capable of screening genes more quickly and at a lower cost than other tests, this evidence comes from only a handful of well-funded health systems. Many other health systems want their own data on the benefits and limitations of CGP before widespread adoption happens. But not every system has or can afford the tools to do so. Until they are provided with the quote-unquote right type of data that shows CGP and corresponding targeted treatments are more effective than established norms, clinicians will stick with what they know. And health systems may also want to see data on overall costs of care before making changes to their default approach. This example highlights the challenge of evidence. How much is enough? And is there a common baseline we can apply across all health systems? Similarly, many public and private insurers do not yet reimburse CGP tests because their real-world benefit is unproven. Without a clear reimbursement model, these tests can be difficult to access for many cancer patients. Let's shift our attention to the third and final barrier to enable transformative clinicians, cost. When we think about the cost of healthcare, we often think about the impact on individuals. But expensive healthcare affects clinicians too. If there's no payment model for a drug, therapy, or other treatment regimen, a clinician is unlikely to prescribe it. Cost barriers are problematic for all kinds of care, including rare diseases. Conditions like cystic fibrosis, hemophilia, and Castleman's disease are devastating and in need of transformative solutions. But because they affect so few people around the world, rare disease care is expensive and can therefore be a tricky field for clinical innovation. Here to tell us more is Dr. Naris Damrongchai, who until recently was the co-chair of the Rare Disease Network within the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, or APEC. I helped to coordinate and bring about perspectives from the APEC member economies and connect with policymakers and stakeholders such as funders, service providers, and so on, in order for the whole region to have an improved system to take care of people with rare diseases. Naris believes personalized health promises to improve outcomes for patients with rare diseases because clinicians will be able to use better technology and data to offer more effective treatments. Personalized health would also connect clinicians more closely with individuals. People with rare diseases are often overlooked in traditional care settings because there are so few of them in any single healthcare system. For example, in Thailand, it's estimated that only 3 million people out of the total population of 65 million have a rare disease. Recently, the Thai government introduced a significant policy change to help people with rare diseases. In Thailand, just 
last year, our policymakers decided to provide support to a number of diseases that we consider ultra rare. By support, I mean that these will be reimbursable. Maybe not in the strict sense, but they were provided with some budgetary support from the healthcare system, and they can use this support for their own care, hospital care, and for other things like logistics. This has been quite a breakthrough because it is a very different thinking from what funders and provider has been providing before. For the first time, people with rare disease can be reimbursed. And that system of reimbursement is so different. This change is both a critical step towards affordability and illustrative of the cost challenges still facing Thailand. Rare disease reimbursement was introduced under Thailand's universal healthcare system, which has been in place since 2002. And although reimbursement will make care more affordable, it is only available to patients who have one of 24 rare diseases and are insured under one of three programs that deliver universal coverage. Our universal healthcare system is evolving quite rapidly. When it was first introduced in Thailand around 20 years ago, it was very much criticized because of the imperfectness of the system. The medical doctors were burdened. The financial system also had very big burden. As time goes by, the system evolved and adapt, and more and more diseases, more and more conditions, and more and more drugs can be reimbursed. Universal coverage promises to deliver affordable, person-centric care to everyone, both across the care continuum and throughout various life stages. And it is one of the World Health Organization's sustainable development goals. But there is some debate about whether universal coverage can actually deliver all kinds of care and support innovation. Critics say a single-payer system is non-competitive and inherently resource-limited, so there will be little money and few incentives to develop novel approaches to care. Naras explains that Thailand is still trying to figure out how to afford universal coverage. I'd love to see we can get rid of the differences that we have among the different payment system. The biggest change has to include the capability of public-private partnership for supporting the payment of healthcare. Right now, most of the burden sits in the government. It can't continue like this. We still face the mindset barrier that we can't overcome at the moment. On the other hand, the WHO and other supporters say data, technology, and innovation are what will make universal coverage possible and affordable. Imagine this positive feedback loop. The innovations of transformative clinicians will reduce costs, which will enable health system to invest more in care, so clinicians can design new innovations, which will reduce more costs, and the circle continues. If we can have this flexibility built into our healthcare system financially, I believe that that kind of change alone will dramatically change the way that the players are acting right now, and it will be for the good of the patients and the population as a whole. And despite its challenges, universal coverage is helping life for the average Thai. According to the WHO, 
Life expectancy rose from 71 to over 74 years of age in the decade after universal healthcare was introduced. At the same time, out-of-pocket spending on healthcare has also been reduced. Fewer families are being pushed into poverty by their medical bills as a direct result of universal coverage. Whether or not you agree that universal coverage is the right policy solution, it is true that affordable care will enable clinicians to adopt new and novel ways to treat people. The effect will be enormous. I can know better as a provider about who I'm taking care of, the hospitals, the insurance company, and the financial department will have a better view of who is actually suffering and really in need of the help. We will have more precise kind of care. There's much more to be done in the personalized health world than what has been done within the traditional healthcare setting. Tackling these barriers of conservative training models, lack of clinical evidence, and cost is critical to unlocking the potential of transformative clinicians. This is an ongoing challenge for health systems around the world, and there are no easy answers. But let me leave you with a powerful real-world example of how clinical evidence can completely transform medical care. When you go to the hospital, what's one of the first things they do? They take your blood pressure. That all emerged actually out of Framingham. This is Rhoda again. She is also the director of neuropsychology for the Framingham Heart Study. Framingham was launched in 1948 to understand the epidemic of heart disease in the United States, which had become the leading cause of death. Lots of people, particularly in the U.S., were dying of heart attacks and stroke, and no one knew why. So they followed this original cohort of just over 5,000 people, and they saw them every two years. They just gave them a whole host of different kinds of tests. More than 70 years after it started, the Framingham study is still ongoing. It has built up an enormous amount of evidence that has yielded critical insights about our health and medical care. Insights that we now consider self-evident. The concept of risk factors for heart disease didn't exist at that time. Back then, we didn't have the concept of high cholesterol, of high blood pressure or hypertension. That actually came out of the Framingham Heart Study because they were able to start linking high blood pressures, high cholesterol, smoking, diabetes with heart disease. The Framingham Heart Study was the study to first define even the concept of risk factors. Clinicians also started to realize that these risk factors were not only indicative of heart disease, but of other diseases as well. When you start to study one disease, you in fact end up studying other diseases at the same time. And that's really what opened up the whole world of preventive medicine. Preventative medicine has completely changed the face of care in the United States and many countries around the world, improving outcomes and saving countless lives. And it is one of the fundamental goals of personalized health, because personalized health is not just about using data and technology to design creative treatments for people who are sick. Personalized health is also about rethinking our fundamental approach to care, including placing more emphasis on prevention. It is about taking a holistic view of well-being so people can live better and healthier lives. This is the Future Proofing Healthcare podcast, where we explore how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. Many thanks to my guests, Dr. Naras Damrungchai, 
and Dr. Rhoda O oh for their time and insights. Thanks also to Dr. Rifata Toon and Dr. Jeremy Lim, who spoke with us in earlier episodes and who shared their perspectives on being a clinician in this one. Join us in our next episode as we explore the ways personalization changes the role of individuals in achieving better health outcomes. You can find more information about Futureproofing Healthcare at futureproofinghealthcare.com, including a list of sources used in developing this episode. To listen, follow, and review our episodes, head to your favorite podcast player. This show is written, researched, and produced by Taliosa, Mission Based Media, and Roche. Additional research and writing was done by Michaela Arneson. Sound design was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening.